guys, and welcome back to the Dishcast. Today we have somebody I've I've admired for most of my adult life and have identified with in some ways, although I'm not of his intellectual caliber. He is Glenn Lowry, and he's an economist, academic, and writer, now extremely well-known and discussed and debated online. At the age of 33, he became the first African-American professor of economics at Harvard to get tenure. He's currently the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Economics at Brown, as well as a Paulson Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's written for many, many publications over the years, including The Republic, including for me back in the day, The Public Interest, and his longtime podcast, The Glenn Show, is now on Substack, where he regularly appears with John McWhorter. And I've listened to him and John talk for years now, and I've always learned something from it. And when Glenn is in full rant mode, I just want to sit back. <laughs> I was just telling him and have a bubble bath and just enjoy the sheer glory and <laughs> ranting that he does. He's also writing, and I'm trying to finish actually now, a memoir, The Enemy Within, a very provocative title, but a very complicated and interesting life. Glenn, it's an honor to have you on the Dishcast. Thanks for coming. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Good to be with you. I want to talk to you, first of all, about exactly what you're writing about, which is a memoir, which is how you came to be who you are and the, the interactions you've had as an intellectual and also as an African-American in your life's journey. You said you're, 70, you're 74, and, it, it, and writing a memoir now must be very interesting thing, a very sort of sobering thing, a way to look at all that you've been and done. Tell me, tell us first of all about your childhood on the south side of Chicago. It sounds like both an extraordinary, alive, vivid, social, cultural explosion of things, a real life, and, and how it affected you and, and, and how you came out of that. Well, okay, there's a lot to say there. That, that's largely what this book is about. Working class, lower middle class, some shopkeepers, some artisans, mostly laborers, secretaries, black, 50s and 60s. It was hip, vivid, stylish, a lot of action, a, a lot of life, as you say. My mother, a song stress, a, a nightingale's voice. Really? Oh, yeah. She was a beautiful jazz vocalist oh. who bounced from one relationship to another, never could quite find her footing. Her sister, my aunt, the matron of the family who maintained an immaculate household into which eventually my mother, my sister and I, because my mom and dad were divorced when I was young, moved. My mother, my sister, and I moved into a small apartment upstairs in the back of a grand house that my aunt presided over. And we got a little bit of a purchase on stability and on middle-class life in a predominantly Black neighborhood of single-family and small-scale apartment buildings, lawns in front. You could leave your bicycle out overnight, fruit trees in the backyard, more or less idyllic, not far just a stone's throw from much more hardcore and problematic ghetto life in Chicago. I knew both sides of the line, both sides of the street, respectability, but also something that was less than respectable, but that was a part of the milieu. 
And I was influenced by both sides of the line. Mm. One of my uncles was the father of 22 by the time he got done. Four different wives and, you know, multiple families that he was juggling and whatnot. Another of my uncles was a graduate of Northwestern University Law School in the early 1950s. He had matriculated at Morehouse College, overlapping with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and was a great success until he wasn't. So, And your uh, uncle Mooney, who, who, yes. who ups up, who seems like quite a character. Tell us about it. Uncle Mooney, uncle Mooney was my mother's sister's husband. It was in his house that I grew up as a as a young kid and as an adolescent. He was a shopkeeper. He was a barber and a hustler. He, you know, did what he needed to do to make money. I mean, he some of it was legal. Some of it wasn't entirely legal, but all of it was more or less respectable. He was a fiercely independent guy. I mean, he was a guy who would bring home the Muhammad Speaks newspaper. This is the Nation of Islam. This is the so-called Honorable Elijah Muhammad, not because he was a devotee, not because he believed the craziness of the Muslim, you know, ideology, but because he saw in the dignified, straight-backed, self-reliant determination to live honorably that he saw from the Muslim community something to be emulated. He's a guy that was ambivalent about the civil rights movement. I mean, you know, he wasn't against it, but his idea was you know, you can call me when they start integrating the money, you know, integra integration for its own sake, sitting next to white people, living next to white people, going to school with white people. Well, yeah, okay, whatever. But call me when they start integrating the money. That was, that was Uncle Bernie. When, when you say your aunt kept an immaculate household, I'm just fascinated by this, this, this black family, really, that is the mother is keeping everything absolutely in order. The, the husband is, is, is all in favor of independence and, and, and self-help and dignity and, and also a kind of slight conspiratorial element to that, which is quite common. Where did they get this? Where did that come from? Well, in this case, I don't know too much about Uncle Mooney's background before okay. he and my aunt Elois married. But on my mother's side, there were the great aunts. And uncles, but mainly the great aunts. There was my mother's mother's family. My mother's mother, my grandmother, Nettie, died of cervical cancer while still in her 30s, leaving four mm. children behind. But her sisters and brothers, there were a dozen of them, Andrew, and they had all migrated from Brookhaven, Mississippi, through Memphis, Tennessee, up to Chicago in the decade after the First World War. So by the time my mother was born in 1928, this cadre of siblings, they were the Goodens, G-O-O-D-E-N-S, the Goodens. They were pretty well established as migrants in, in Chicago of the late 1920s, early 1930s. And they built lives for themselves as migrants in Chicago. They were Negroes, Blacks, coloreds. They were subject to all manner of imposition and exclusion and discrimination, but they nevertheless persevered. And by the time I came along, 1948, many of this initial generation of migrants had finally really established themselves as property owners, small business owners, and hustlers of one stripe or another who were making their way into a bourgeois, middle-class, Black Chicago life. They, they prized their cars, their furs, their, their silverware, their mahogany, their 
crystal, their, you know, their, their lace curtains, so to speak. <laughs> Black version of the lace curtains. And, and, and they, and, and they, they, they wrought out for themselves a life of, of, of dignified as striving. And my mother was the beneficiary and her siblings were to some degree the beneficiary of this successful generation. And my aunt, my mother's it, sister. It the, feels a little like the immigrant experience in America. And they're migrating in a way to make their lives better. And it, it, it has aspects of that story in it. Yeah, I think it's it Isabel Wilkerson, the warmth of warmth over leather sun. I think that's the book in which she chronicles this this migration and she singles out a half dozen families for in depth case study. But yeah, they they were internal migrants, African American migrants, you know, coming out of rural South and poverty into quote the promised land. So this this obviously kind of is one influence upon you. This notion that we you can make a middle-class life, you can, there can be respectability and discipline and self and pride. But also, of course, you're in, you're, there's the other side of the street that you're also connected to. Tell me about how that, how you navigated that. What happened in high school? How did you discover that you actually had a brain that was considerably more talented than many of your peers? Well, I was a bright kid and that was recognized pretty early on. In the fifth or sixth grade, I got double promotion because the teachers thought I was bored with the work of the fifth grade. So they pushed me up to the seventh grade. One of my teachers was very keen on seeing me recruited to the University of Chicago's laboratory school, a prep school at the University of Chicago, a very high caliber, intense, elite place. And, and I went over and was interviewed, but my parents, my mother and father, who were divorced, but were both involved in my upbringing, didn't want to see me in that world. I think they were a little intimidated. I mean, it was elite, white, intellectual, University of Chicago world, which would have been foreign to them. And I think they were a little bit apprehensive that I would forget, you know, who I was and where I came from, that I would be completely transformed by that world. They didn't want to give their son up to that world. So I didn't, I didn't pursue that. I went to, you know, decent public schools in Chicago in the 1950s and 60s. And, and I got a pretty good education in the public schools of Chicago in the 1950s and 60s. It's good at math. I had excellent teachers. They identified my talent. But, you know, I was on the south side of Chicago and, you know, it was there was a lot of things going on, and, and I was this precocious kid who was 12 years old when I enrolled as a freshman in high school, and only by the time I got to my junior and senior years in high school was I beginning to kind of catch up in terms of my, you know, development as an adolescent, and, you know, girls came into the picture and whatnot. The next thing you knew, my girlfriend was pregnant. I was 17. She was 15. We didn't do abortion in those days. I mean, I guess some people did. We didn't, you know. I married at 18 with a kid, and then there's another kid, and I'm dropped out of college, and I'm working as a clerk in a factory and trying to get my life back in order again. And my father, my father, the late Everett Lowry, who clawed his way at night through law school and was a certified public accountant and worked as a tax specialist in the Internal Revenue Service and had a long, successful career in the IRS. But when I told him that I was dropping out of college and that my girlfriend had gotten pregnant, he was absolutely disgusted. You know, he said, you're going to ruin your life. You know, you're just tremendous talent. You're 10 times smarter than me. What's wrong with you? But I, I was, I was 
You know, I was caught up in this thing. I, I wanted to live life. I, I, I wanted to have some of the flair and, and the kind of style that I saw in my, my mother's brothers. And I, I, you know, I wanted to get laid. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I, 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 you know, I wanted. You were 17 years old, Glenn. I mean, you're exactly. a 17 year old yeah, right. male. <laughs> about 95% of one's time is spent thinking about how you get laid. Yeah, I yeah, understand. Right. But also, by, I mean, I think to some extent, you know, you, it sounds like you also repressed that for a while because you were in your studies and, and you were kind of a nerd in a way. And so maybe the delay of that turns into something a little wilder when it actually emerges. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just projecting. <laughs> it was the 1960s. The Vietnam War was going on. The Black right. Power movements right. of one kind or another were going on. There was a lot of that. There was a lot happening. I ended up, after a couple of years wandering around and going to a community college, I ended up being discovered by one of my community college teachers who was an alumnus of Northwestern. The year was 1969. I was 21 years old in a college dropout and taking classes in this community college. And this, this guy saw, you know, he said, this, this kid's really deserves to be at a really good place. And he recommended me to the admissions office at Northwestern. And they could look at my test scores were okay, but my transcript was, was checkered because I had dropped out of college, but they decided to take a chance on me. And they offered me a full scholarship if I was willing to commute up from the South side to Northwestern University which I could only do while maintaining a full-time employment because I had a wife and kids. So I was working an eight-hour shift at night, midnight to eight o'clock or 4 p.m. to midnight. And I was commuting up to Northwestern to attend classes, which I did for two years and a summer. And I ended up with a BA from Northwestern in mathematics with a minor in economics. I was doing very well. My teachers were quite proud of me and they Brought my, wrote, you know, strong letters of support. And I got admitted to MIT as a PhD student with a, a financial aid and went on and did my PhD at MIT. But so I, I got into an academic career a little bit late, having dropped out of college. But I, I hit the ground running when I came to Cambridge, Massachusetts as a grad student in 1972 and haven't looked back. And you were kind of entranced or at least influenced by neoliberalism and economics. You're, that was a period in which neoliberalism was kind of reviving in the academy, that, that, that this is when free markets and, and some of the critiques of the welfare state and of, and of planning were becoming more potent. It was a very exciting time in many ways on the right and center right in America and in the UK for that, for that reason. When did you first feel any conflict between these thoughts and your the court where you were from. I mean, one of the things that you focused on in your early academic career was something you called social capital, for example, which is a slight critique, isn't it, of neoliberalism in as much as it says there are other issues involved here. There are other structural questions, social, cultural, economic, that, yeah. that, that, uh, that have kept African-Americans back in ways that are... Uh, a slightly nebulous to nail down, but nonetheless a, a, is very real. Yeah. And I, I'd love you to unpack that early thought you had about social capital and how you, how when you look back at that idea, how you think of it in retrospect. How does it, how does it compare in your mind to the concept, for example, of systemic or structural racism? Okay, okay. There's a lot there. Neoliberalism, social capital. 
Yes, forgive me. You can, you can, you can, you can, you can, I know that your brain can, can tackle a million different subjects at once. So anyway. Well, no, thank you. So the, the first of all, let me just say that, you know, I was trained as an economist at MIT. Now, MIT was not the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago had a very well-defined tradition of, you know, a classical liberal thought in a number of fields, but especially in economics, influenced by people like Friedrich von Hayek and his one of his in, in influencees, one of his protégés, Milton Friedman. And they were they were worshippers of the market and suspicious about government activity, whether it be Keynesianism on the macro management side, or it'd be socialism and, you know, centralization of economic decision-making and political. They were suspicious. I ended up at MIT, not at Chicago, even though I was born in Chicago. My teachers encouraged me to avoid the University of Chicago because they thought it was too rigidly ideological and right. So I ended up at MIT and my teachers were people like Paul Samuelson and Robert Solo and Franco Modigliani and Peter Diamond and, and other people who have, you know, been honored in for their accomplishments as economics researchers. They were not Chicago free marketeers, but they were certainly neoliberals in, in the modern day sense of that word. I mean, they believed in private property. They believed in capitalism. They believed in relatively unfettered market dynamics, determining how resources got allocated. They, they, they understood that corporations were complex legal entities, but they didn't take it for granted that corporations were evil or whatever. They, you know, they, it was it was an interesting set of problems to study. So I, when I left MIT in 1976 with a PhD in economics, I would have thought of my having written a thesis in which I did introduce this idea about social capital, about which I'll say more in a moment. I didn't think of myself as being right of center. I, I thought of myself as being an economist, that is, as someone who had a professional training in modern economics and who appreciated the subtleties and complexities of the way that that markets worked to affect more or less efficient resource allocation, not without a concern about distributional issues, not, not without a worry about market failure, not unfettered markets, not cowboy capitalism, but nevertheless, even though they would have been somewhat to the left of Chicago, the MIT School of, of Economic Thought was deeply respectful of markets. I got onto the social capital idea because I wasn't satisfied with the account that economics was providing a persisting racial inequality, which was largely one of a focus on human capital, skill acquisition, education, training, work experience, professional development, and so on, and on discrimination, the conventional market discrimination where employers, because they're racist, won't treat the labor of Blacks with the same remuneration as they would the labor of others, because they, as Gary Becker argued in a classic work from the 1950s, because they need to be compensated for having to endure the presence of Blacks in their workforce. That was one account of the persistence of racial inequality, and I thought it had some merit, but I didn't think it went deeply enough. I, I was interested in what was going on on the supply side of the labor market mm -hmm. on where skills were being formed and acquired, where human productivity was being developed. And I thought that that process was embedded within social relations, within families, within communities, within peer groups, within networks of social affiliation. It wasn't simply an economic 
enterprise. So, for example, concretely, a child is conceived in the womb, nurtured, is born, is developed before even well before schools, and there are influences that affect the neurological and cognitive development of that child, the behavioral development of that child, so that by the time the child is five or six years old, a lot has already happened relevant to the productivity of that child later in life. And what that is, that process of influence on the child's development, is not mainly a market-mediated phenomenon. It's not about buying and selling. It's about relationship. It's about connection. It's about identity. It's about culture. So I thought that if we wanted to understand how it was late in the 20th century decade, or more after the end of the civil rights movement, that African-American disadvantage in terms of income and occupational achievement and other social indicators was still lagging, we needed to come to grips with the social context of human development that influences the acquisition of, of what the economists of the day were calling human capital, social capital, human capital, that was the distinction. And so, I, I mean, I don't want to take too much credit. I merely used a phrase. I didn't tr- truly develop. Yes, but you were trying, like, you were trying yeah. to get to the nub of it. You were trying to get the root of inequality, yeah. and you thought it had not been properly really figured out. There was something here that wasn't being accounted for. And early childhood is incredibly, it turns out, important. It, it, I wish it, I'm in some ways one wish it wasn't because you could, you would have much more freedom to, 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 to correct errors and to um, remedy things if it were. But so what are those things that happen in the first five years of a child's life that would be different for your classic African-American kid than say a classic, let's say Asian-American kid? So what happens in that first five years? that you think is important? Is it a function of inherited attention skills? It is, is it about, I don't know, you tell me. So one of my classmates at MIT back in the early 70s is an economist named Ronald Ferguson. He teaches at the Kennedy School now. We've been friends. He's black, was an undergraduate at Cornell. We came together in the same class in 1972. Anyway, I mentioned him because I was just talking to him about a program that he started called BASIC. The basics, the basics is what he calls it. And it is, I won't remember off the top of my head all of the principles, but it's basically teaching parents how to foster in a maximally effective way the cognitive development of their children before school. So it's things like, and these are obvious things, read to the kid. Read and point at the pictures in the book to the kid. Sing and talk to the kid, even when the kid is in the womb. Play with the kid. Do your math puzzles and your shapes and your things like that with a child in order to promote their development because the brain is so elastic in the earliest years and it really matters about this kind of stimulation. So that's part of it. Values and norms. What's important in life? This is not just in the first five years. This is throughout the child's development, but values and norms. What constitutes your sense of right living. I, 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 I hesitate even to say this because it's so corny and it's, it's so out of fashion to valorize that you would want to inculcate 
principles and norms about living and, and your kids, but uh, of responsibility, of self-reliance, of, you know, the value of hard work, of the, these are things that I, I think are very important. I, I'm, when in talking about racial issues, not unaware of the family structure, the outward like birth, single parent family and father absence and so on. So, so these are some of the things that I would point to. And you were, but you, you yourself, you know, brought up by essentially an aunt and uncle to some extent. Yeah. That you live in a world in which the, the older generation of women are doing so much of the work in terms of yeah. taking care of kids. It's not a pattern that's not been recognized, but it does have an impact in a capitalistic society in which the very values that you're talking about will lead to greater success in the economy. We just know this for a fact. And so when Asian American kids are brought up in a certain way, in some ways, in a very different way, they're, they're kind of ahead before they even begin. Well, yeah, that's true. I, I want to say on my own account here that I have not in my life always been an exemplar of the principles of responsible parenthood. I, I had a son out of wedlock when I was quite young, whom I did not acknowledge and develop a relationship until he was a young adult. Alden, Alden Lowry, my son, who I'm very happy to report, I now share a wonderful relationship with him and his children, but it took many years before that happened. I mentioned my uncle, father of 22, who was in effect as for all practical purposes, a polygamist for much of his life. One of my themes in the memoir is that many of us live on both sides of the line. And, you know, I wanted one in the same time. And I did this as I came out in my early neocon phases in the 1980s and 90s when I was writing for the New Republic. You know, you want to affirm certain principles about right living, but being humans as we are, we don't always... We don't always adhere to the the principles that we would, you know, and they're not, that we would. That's an interesting. Extol. It's fascinating because the the somewhat sort of crude response to that is called is is to call someone like that a hypocrite, a hypocrite. you know, or some right. and and using that to say you have no right to criticize right. it. But of course, of course, it's precisely those those who are in that world that are capable of talking about it honestly without it being some moralizing condemnation, but being a kind of call to awareness of how these things can hurt without placing oneself in a position of, of greater authority. Look, I'll give you an example out of my life. Was that, was that, no, I supported marriage equality very early on, as you, as you know. And yeah. thought it was a great thing that gay people should, gay men should be able to form long-term bonds because it would help us all to be more stable, to have less, a crushing lack of self-esteem as we grow up. It will provide direction. Did that mean that I didn't fuck around a lot? No, it didn't. I mean, I wasn't married, but I was a, I was a single gay man and I had plenty of sex and and to such an extent, in a period of AIDS, in a period of HIV, which got me HIV positive, even though I, I didn't, I honestly didn't behave so crazy. I, there wasn't a moment where I thought, oh, Jesus, I'm going to get AIDS if I do this, but I didn't. But nonetheless, I got it. 
to turn around and say, you are a fucking hypocrite. You can't even talk about the goal of marriage equality because you fucked around is a very useful tool that people use. But of course, hypocrisy, it hypocrisy which is not hypocrisy. The tribute, advice pays to virtue. That's the way I remember it. Hypocrisy of is a tribute pays to virtue. Well, yes, but again, it, it's not, especially when you're not denying in any way or hiding the fact that you're, you are in, you are part of the, of the culture you are criticizing and defending at the same time. I said to my friend, Richard John Newhouse, Father Richard Newhouse, whom I knew well, the late great theologian, he, he was taking me to task after one of my extramarital peccadillos became public and I was embarrassed by it. And I said to him, Richard, don't you know that what I was preaching as a public intellectual about right living for the Black community was true, regardless of whether or not my personal living practices conform with it. To which his and I said, I said, after all, even Martin Luther King Jr. himself was not immune to some of these temptations, and yet we we're not going to take a statue down, are we? To which he said, Well, okay, I see what you mean, but you know, you're going to tell other people how to live. You're going to be a, a moral leader, and you're going you're going to have to tell other people how to live. Well, if you do that, you have a responsibility to live a dignified and righteous life yourself. Otherwise, not, he's not calling me a hypocrite. He, he's saying I make a mockery of the very idea of moral leadership if I don't try to hew to those same standards. So he says, you're either a moral leader or you're not. Now you decide. And you know, This is a man I, I who was, publicly defended Marcial Maciel, a serial child rapist, <laughs> one of the most depraved I did not know people. That one of the most depraved people in the Catholic Church, the head of the Legion of Christ, in which Newhouse said that he was an absolute moral certainty this man was innocent. So, and again... Oh, gosh, I did not know that. Oh, yes. Newhouse was a defender to the nth degree of every major abuser in the Roman Catholic Church, denying anything had gone awry. So that his, his, his righteousness was a quite economically doled out, and certainly not to people in the Catholic Church, where, of course, the time when he was writing was the place most obviously far more than what you, any of us do yeah. in, our, in, our, in our flawed, you know, human, crooked timber of humanity way. This was grotesque hypocrisy that he refused to denounce it and refused to believe. So don't get me started on Richard John Newhouse. <laughs> oh, wow, man. You're, you're educating me. I, 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 take note, I take note of this, and I'm going to do some research myself here. This is a man who I was in an elevator with him at a conference, because I was went to do those New York conferences too. And some of those, especially religiously, I was a Catholic, you know, so, so I was. Yeah, and we were talking about sexuality. And he just looked at me at one point and said, you know, whatever you think, it, it, it's an objective disorder. You're objectively disordered, Andrew. And at the time, I just didn't know what to say to that. This was him on homosexuality. Yes. A subject, well, the less said about him and that subject, probably the better. But I just find accusations of hypocrisy to people who are just human, who, who do not take their own personal failings to be a reason why you can't articulate what the values that you would actually aspire to, even though you haven't reached them, that would collectively be better for us, even though you don't manage it sometimes yourself. If we banish 
any ability to talk about those things will essentially silence any ability to rise above where rise above where we are because we're all at some level we're all hypocrites at some degree to a very small to a great degree because we're humans and we're going to fail do i think for example that a leading you know religious right person whose marriage collapses is somehow to be condemned no you see that they're a human being and these things can happen it's understandable. And especially when yeah. you're not telling, you're not on a pulpit telling people how to live. You're an economist and a social scientist trying to understand how people prosper. And that means that if you, <laughs> that's just an objective way of understanding the world. It would be better if gay men, even though we're men and we can't really do this very well, but it's great that we can develop relationships that are stronger and more committed and have longer lives and are much better than living in a complete chaos of no no, no real legal or structural support at all for coupling. And so I think we've made a huge step forward. But again, this notion that critics within those communities who want to make those communities better, who are not themselves absolute avatars of moral virtue, should be dismissed. They should not be dismissed. They're crucial, crucial people for our self-improvement. What I find so, so, so terrible is the way we raise these legitimate questions and instead of responding to the legitimate questions, they personalize it and say, well, you can't talk, you bloody hypocrite. It's, it's an easy way out. But, it's, but what I find interesting, your point is that to some extent, when you went through your conservative phase, you kind of emphasized less that social capital and these structural questions than, than placing responsibility firmly on the backs of African-Americans in a way to fucking get their shit together. And that was, that was a theme of for about 20 years, you've, you've slightly qualified that in some ways. Can you tell me how you, when you came to terms with the fact maybe that was too, that was too tough, that was too sharp? Well, you know, I may be back to square one on that, but we can get to that. I, I, I'm saying you've these come days, back to, for Christ's sake, get your lives in order and, and, and then. Yeah, and, th th that's been my message of late. Well, I went through, I went through some changes and, the late 80s and early 90s, I, I had a terrible drug addiction problem, which I had to combat and overcame in due course. I converted to evangelical Christianity. That's one of the reasons why I developed a relationship with Richard John Newhouse, who's Center for Religion and Public Life. I think it's what he called his think tank in New York that examined the place of religion within the larger American political culture. And I was an overtly believing Protestant Christian in those years and an intellectual professor at Harvard and then at Boston University and was involved with Richard's Center, published in his magazine, The First Things, The Occasional Essay, and had a crisis of political faith in the early mid-90s. I didn't disavow my neoconservative reflexes about the importance of, you know, getting your shit together. But I, I came to think that the conservative critique didn't have enough space in it for how do we help these people and what do we do? And it was more of a throwing up of the hands and the saying the liberals all have their heads up their butts. They, they don't know what they're doing, but not actually valuing the importance of being in relationship with the those who were on the short end of the, of the stick in terms of social status and figuring out, working assiduously to figure out how it is that 
as a society, we could we could be helpful and supportive and help to ameliorate these conditions. And I also had a personal crisis in that my notoriety among the conservatives, I came to think, turned too much on my racial identity and the fact that I could be trotted out as a Black voice and a Black face and give cover to and a kind of authorization of a set of arguments that people might have been making for their own reasons. And and then books came along, books like The Bell Curve. I was a, a fellow, a, a, I'm sorry, a academic advisor to Christopher DeMuth, who at the time was president of the American Enterprise Institute. Charles Murray was a fellow at AEI when The Bell Curve was published. Mary and Herrnstein, 1994. I'm sure you remember that well. Uh, the, the end of racism that was Dinesh D'Souza a couple of years later, he publishes a book about race in America. This is the firebrand conservative polemicist who's, who's still popping off from time to time, as I'm sure you know. And, you know, he was a free speech advocate, bad boy at Dartmouth college when he was in college. And we used to call it a little book called Please. Illiberal Education that was a bestseller that I actually admired because I thought it put its fingers on some stuff that was quite wrong. Mm-hmm. But by the time he gets to the end of racism, I, yeah. I, I just thought it was a horribly, it was offensive to me in so many ways. It was sophomoric. It, it was a, an inch deep in terms of the social theory and intellectual history that was being spun out there and whatever. And, and I was very disappointed by AEI for its promotion and endorsement of, of the work. And I ended up resigning from the American Enterprise Institute as an academic advisor out of, in effect, protest against these books. And then my friends, my dear friends, Abigail and Stephen Thernstrom, published their book, America in Black and White, One Nation Indivisible. It's a big, comprehensive historical narrative about race the development of race and race relations and racial inequality in America from before the emancipation. Stephen Thurstrom, a very distinguished American historian at Harvard, his wife, Abigail, an estimable political scientist and social critic in her own right. And The Atlantic gave me the assignment of reviewing that book. Our friend Jack Beattie was a senior editor at The Atlantic Mm. in those years. And I wrote probably 7,000 words in which I basically said, you know, us being right about liberals being wrong which is pretty much what that book said on every page. Liberals are wrong about this. Just not good enough anymore. It's just not good enough. We got a big chunk of the country going to hell in a handbasket. And the best we can do is point fingers and at liberals being wrong. That's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. It's not good enough. Uh, I want to be a part of an intellectual movement, which is what I thought neoconservatism was when it got underway under the influence of the likes of Irving Kristol and Nathan Glazer and Daniel Bell and, and others which was we got mugged by reality and we got both eyes open now and we're going to look at the facts and we're going to be hard-headed, but we still care about solving the problem of social equality, yeah. inequality in the country. And I didn't think conservatism and conservatism on the racial issues circa 1995 was anywhere close to that. Mm. And, I, and I found myself drifting away. Mm. That was the push. The pull was, I wanted to come home again. I didn't know you can't go home again. It, it took me a while to figure out that you can't go home again. I, a black kid from the South Side of Chicago, who had become a Reagan conservative and was ostracized by the black cognoscenti everywhere I turned, including when I went back to Chicago and had to deal with some of my own family members and whatnot. And I was in the wilderness. And after I went through this 
trauma in my life, drug addiction and recovery, a religious conversion and so on, a disillusionment with my relations on the right. I was lonely. I wanted back in. I, I wanted the warm embrace of, quote unquote, my people. I, I once wrote this line. I said, everybody amongst my neocon friends had somewhere to go when the music stopped. They were going to Dublin or they were going to Jerusalem or they were going to Rome. You get what I mean? I mean, they, 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 they had a, a people. Why could not have a people? I have to be out there in the wilderness. I have to be this deracinated, disconnected, alien uh, person. I'm a black kid from the south side of Chicago. Those are my people. That was the pull for me to reorient myself. I was unhappy with my life as a token and a mascot. That was the un unfriendly way of putting it. But there was some truth in that. And I was lonely and I wanted back in. So by the time Henry Louis Gates Jr. invites me to give the Du Bois lectures, this prestigious academic lecture series at Harvard in 2000, which I did give and which became my book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, I gave three lectures at Harvard in the spring of 2000. I was, I was anxious for the opportunity to articulate this point of view that I've just tried to give a little bit of voice to, which is that it's just not good enough to point out, as I am quite happy to point out that there are problems with affirmative action, it's just not good enough to point out, as James Q. Wilson would have urged me to point out, that you need to maintain order in a civil society and that a law and order is going to require grappling with crime and punishing criminals. It, it's not enough to point out, as I was happy to point out, that the stable nuclear family is a tried and true in institutional context with, within which to foster the human development of the next generation, and that we depart from that at our peril. I, I know that I'm on treacherous ground in saying that for many people, but I, I, I was trying to say it's not enough to say that. These are our people. This is not some alien imposition on an otherwise pristine Euro-American canvas that we're talking about here. This was a problem, an issue, the ghetto, the Black marginality, the, the unresolved American dilemma that was made right here in the USA. It's woven into the fabric of the country. We're not alien from it. We don't rightly turn our backs on it, et cetera. And that's how I ended and up. And you, 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 you enter the position of, propose, of proposing stuff that could help, right? Well, that's, that's the only way forward, really, to say, what can we do? And what I find, you know, so frustrating is that, as you're right, there's plenty of critiques on the right of everything the left has fucked up. And then there's this general admonition, well, just, you know, get on with it. And there's no in-between point at which we can do this, we could do that. Here's an idea, as if it was an urgent question. Yes, what, what, what is there? What can we do? That's the question. I, like, let's, let's take what? a question that, that my readers have often asked me, is that you could make a lot of arguments about what's happening in America today, but, but there is one very potent reality, which is the wealth gap, which is, which is the black-white wealth gap, which is a huge encumbrance to racial equality. And then the question is, how does one get around that? How does one mitigate that? What are the policies that could be constructed to ameliorate that? Well, I could go down a list. I mean, we could focus on well, education. Please do. So how do we solve the racial wealth gap? <laughs> I know it's a big question to you, but how would you begin to do that? You know, I, I wouldn't take it as a, a goal of public policy, to be honest with you. And I mean, why 
the racial wealth gap, why, why not simply address ourselves to the extent that we're concerned about the lack of wealth in some quarters in the society to the lack of wealth? What, what's, what's race got to do with it? Well, we think, I mean, this is a theory of history, isn't it? We, we think that the racial wealth gap is a reflection of historical racial disadvantage of one sort or another. And I'm not, and, and certainly it is to some extent, but I'm not persuaded that that's, as a social scientific claim, the whole story. You know, wealth doesn't fall from the sky. Wealth is created by human creativity, ingenuity, risk-taking, and entrepreneurship and all of that. I, I, surely the studies show that there are hangovers from historical discrimination that are reflected in part in asset holding. You can talk about property values and redlining and so on. You can talk about how the housing market works and, and so on, about inheritance and so on. But it's a very, very dynamic system that we're in. And to the, the backward-looking focus on rectification of historical mistreatment, I think, is, is the wrong way to look at it. And the, and the racialized focus, I, I think, is the wrong way to look at it. So I would prefer to talk about what social policies are most effective and consistent with fostering the well-being of all of our people. And I don't say that as a as a ideological commitment to color blindness as such. I say it as a moral claim. I don't see that blacks are any more deserving of public attention than whites or Asians or Latinos or anybody else because our ancestors were were not always fairly treated. I say it as a political claim. It seems to me if you wanted to actually get it done, whatever the it is, if you wanted a robust system of social supports in terms of health care for all of our people, if you wanted early childhood education universally available to families, including those who could not afford it, if you wanted various kinds of regulations of, of labor market and workplace in terms of family leave or minimum wage or any, any of these things, you need political majorities and the fostering of uh, mustering of those political majorities requires formulating your claims in terms that are universally applicable to the people whom you're trying to whom you're trying to persuade but i also say this this what am i saying what i'm saying is okay you want to solve a wealth gap let's worry about the people who don't have wealth and let's not worry about what color they are i'm also saying that from the point of view in my opinion of what is most consistent in the end with the dignity and the honor of we African-Americans ourselves. Don't make us into clients. Don't make us into wards. Don't make us into a project. Uh, don't patronize us. Don't, in this dynamic country that's open to people coming from all over the world, and they're coming in droves, and new lives are being made every, every year, every generation, and you know, presume that we are incapable making of the possibilities that are afforded to us in this great country every bit as much as anyone else who's a part of the society. So I'm That's... I'm loath to go go down there with you. I'm loath, I'm loath okay. to follow you into that discussion for the reasons that I've stated. I I completely understand that. There's a question here of dignity, condescension, treating an entire group of people somehow inherently needing support or help. There is a way in which the way the, the, the discourse on the left has really regressed in many ways to this notion that there's nothing, that the entire system is so stacked. So, for example, if I ever bring up the question of family structure or early education or early childhood as issues that need to be, someone like Jamel Bowie will literally just quote me and say, here he goes again. 
raising these completely irrelevant issues where the only relevant issue is white supremacy. And, and for me, two things I would assume. I'm just trying to understand a question and try and help find a solution. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making any other statement. Secondly, if you dismiss all these actual possible ways of improving and insist instead on this rather abstract notion of white supremacy and the need to then artificially discriminate in favor of one group against another as a response to it, you are actually not addressing the problem at all. You are avoiding it. There's this massive avoidance. And, and the, 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 the extremism of the left on this seems to me to be absolutely in line with the notion that, in fact, everything we've done hasn't worked. And therefore, rather than addressing what hasn't worked, we are going to to simply go to some abstraction called white supremacy, which will explain everything that's wrong. And then we won't have to bother doing anything about it. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think it's a monumental error. I haven't followed every word that Jamil Bowie has written, but, you know, I, enough. And his ilk, if I can put it that way. And, 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 you know, the error that I see here is that on the one hand, you begin with the premise that the society is intrinsically racist, is contemptuous of your humanity as a black person, is, is vicious and, and, you know, unfair. But then you make the object of your advocacy to demand the society to solve your problem. You throw yourself on the mercy of a court even as you loudly denounce the court for being intrinsically biased against yourself, I just fail to see the logic in that. And I fail to see how that makes you into anything other than a client, a ward. You are to succeed or fail by their leave, not as a consequence of your own agency. And I want to say to, to such folks, the Charles Blows of the world, I want to say, you, you know, this is not equality, the world that you envision. The, 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 even if you succeed in your demand for reparations and your insistence on deference and condemnation of anyone who 30 years ago had the word, the N-word in their yearbook, in, in your policing of the line of politically correct expression with respect to all of these kinds of issues, you can't talk this way about crime. You can't call the murderous criminal whose violent behavior is wreaking havoc on tens of thousands of people in a Chicago neighborhood by the T word, I mean thug, because to do so would be violative of, of, of some principles of etiquette. Even, even as you do this, you're, you're not creating a world of equality, of racial equality. You're rather creating a world of, of, of hierarchy and patronization where we African-American victims are, how does the anthropologist, political anthropologist, James Scott, the book is called The Weapons of the Weak. We, we you know, we're weak, but, but we're going to kind of leverage our weakness on, on behalf of our, our political goals. And I, I, I just have deep problems with that. What's worse than that, it seems to me, is it, does, it goes further than and it stig deliberately stigmatizes people who want to talk about those questions. You want to talk about how do we improve young childhood education? How do we talk about improving family structure? How do we deal with healthcare? How do we deal with childcare support for the very young? It's, it, for, for, especially for parents who are overwhelmed with work, who, who don't have the time or the energy sometimes to be there for their children. 
And the idea that if you start talking about these very practical things, you are actually just enabling white supremacy and, you, and then you, you are frozen out of the debate to keep you quiet about these things seems to me to be incredibly counterproductive to making any kind of progress. Yeah, we're, we're in agreement about that. I want to ask a spiritual question of you because there, there is a point, obviously, when you are grappling with addiction where you, like many people, find the only way out of that addiction is some notion of a higher power saving you in some way and giving up your attempt to control everything with a more spiritual emphasis of letting it go and, and, and seeking help from elsewhere. And yet, and that did seem to help you for quite a while. And it, it, it seems to be a factor in a lot of people's recovery. But then at some point also you, you moved away. In fact, you have this devastating description of, 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 of at a friend's funeral. You, 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 you suddenly come to terms with your lack of faith. Can you talk me through that? It's a, it's a fascinating dilemma to me. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was the late 80s, and, and I was a cocaine addict, and I had a real serious problem. I had to get help. I was hospitalized and then spent months at a halfway house as a resident and Ooh. developed a relationship with the Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous movements. And embraced the 12 steps, you know, of recovery. You know, I admitted that I was an alcoholic and that my life had become unmanageable. I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I made a decision to turn my life over to the will and the care of this power greater than myself. And it wasn't religious at first. It wasn't a Christian or anything. It, it, it was just one foot in front of the other, one day after the other, trying to claw my way back to a certain dignified way of living. I, I was miserable and, and I was compulsive and I was my own worst enemy. And if I didn't let go and let God, as, as we would have said, I was going to destroy myself. I was going to destroy the people who were close to me, like my wife, Linda, my late wife, Linda, dependent upon me. And I was going to fail to live up to the possibilities of my own humanity. And it was just a waste and a shame. And I didn't know how to solve that problem on my own. And so I surrendered. And through that process, especially the time I spent five months living in a halfway house in 1988, I started paying some attention to the, the promptings of, of religious people who urged me to consider a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, that just puts it directly. And I, I fell under the influence and protection, really, of a wonderful couple, Ray Hammond and Gloria White Hammond, who are pastors of a church that was just getting started as I was coming along in the late 1980s, but has prospered. It's an institution of hope and, and positive effect in a Black community in Boston that still flourishes to this day. And I basically enrolled, my wife and I, this is before our son, Glenn, who's now 34 years old, before he was born. And, and we, we made ourselves a part of that burgeoning religious community. And I'd say for 15 years, I was a, a stalwart member of, of the faithful. And we, we brought our children up in the church and it had a, a great positive influence on my life. But I did, I did fall away from it. 
and it's a long story and I, I will talk about it in the memoir and I, I, I don't want to tell it all here, but I, I will say that I, I had a number of different crises. I mean, first of all, I'm an intellectual, you know, I'm an I'm a economist, I'm a PhD, I'm a numbers guy, I'm a rationality guy. So I, I always had a little bit of kind of second thoughts and doubts in the back of my mind about this, some of these remarkable claims, like the claim that a man that we call Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and lives even to this day. That's a pretty remarkable thing to, to believe, literally. And, it, and there were other things. It was a somewhat charismatic congregation, the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, led by Ray and Gloria Hammond, where AME denomination, which is relatively staid and, and conservative amongst the Black Protestant denominations, but this particular religious community had a more of a charismatic Pentecostal kind of feel to it. And so they, they believe things like a woman is dying of breast cancer here, but we're praying and we're extending our hands and we're calling on the Spirit of God to heal her. And we don't doubt that that's a possibility if indeed it be his will. And there was a lot of expressiveness in, in worship, you know, a lot of getting happy and dancing and, you know. People uh, falling out. Falling out and speaking in tongues and, and things of this kind. Mm -hmm. not, not to excess, not, not on every occasion, not, but it, it was a part of the culture of the church. And I was always you know, a little uncomfortable with it. There, there was a performative, it seemed to me, aspect to it. I even tell the story in in this book that will be available before the year is out. I even tell the story of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is what they call it, which is receiving, if you look in the book of Acts in the New Testament, Jesus makes some promises that you can be empowered with these supernatural gifts of healing, of prophecy, of speaking and interpreting tongues and the rest, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open to you. If you petition, if you tru truly believe, if you call upon the Lord to empower you in this way, you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And one morning when we, the, the crew that set up the folding chairs in this community schools gymnasium where the church was meeting before services and that took the folding chairs down after services were, and I was a part of this crew, we're doing our labor. After we had finished, the group gathered around for prayer, and it was observed that I had yet to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they began praying for me to be an anointed, you know, in this way. And they had hands laying on me, and they were praying, and they were vituperating, and they, and they were expressing, and, and, and they were fervent, and they were passionate. And I realized that they were they weren't going to stop until something happened. <laughs> they were just going to keep on praying, and so well, you gave it to them. I gave it to them, man. <laughs> and I felt so rotten after the fact. After I'm in my car and I'm driving home, and I'm what am I going to tell my wife about this thing? And you know, yeah. so there were there were little things like that, not so mm. little, but you know. The community, nevertheless, was a wonderful place for us. There, there was support. There was encouragement. There was decency. I saw people's lives being changed there. I saw people coming yeah, absolutely. from one side to the other there, and, and it was a good thing, is a good thing. 
in my opinion. It is. For, for it's an amazing thing. Exactly. So to make a long story short, fast forward maybe eight or 10 years, and I have a working relationship with a wonderful young woman who's my administrative assistant who has ambitions to go to law school. She works with me for a few years, does a fantastic job. We raise money to help her take the LSAT prep course, and she gets admitted to Boston University Law School, and she blows it out in the first year and has straight A's in her courses and is elected to law review and everything. And then suddenly she gets a viral infection of the heart, and she's on a wait list for a heart transplant. And weeks later, she's dead. And so she dies this tragic. So there's a funeral. And at the funeral, my congregation, our pastor, the fellow members of the church and family and friends are gathered. And it's a celebration of the fact that she is now with Jesus, that she has been the beneficiary of the promise of everlasting life. We didn't come to mourn the death of Sherry DuPont. We came here to celebrate the everlasting life. God's not dead. He's still alive, alive, alive forevermore. Jesus is alive. And they're dancing around this church as they go past the coffin. In the front of the cathedral, there's a celebratory mood. People are clapping. And in this moment, I, I was overtaken by a horrible thought which was that there was nothing righteous about what was going on there at all. Rather, it was self-righteous. We were afraid to confront the realities of our condition, which is that you can step into an abyss and fall, and it goes all the way down. This promise of everlasting life, that was going to be our salve. We were going to content ourselves with this delusion, I thought. I could not suppress the thought. I wanted simply and unselfconsciously to feel the pain and mourn the loss. I wanted to stand in awe of it. I didn't want an explanation for it. I didn't want to play, be placated. I didn't need that. And I found myself thinking, even in that moment, that these people are cowards. And it's a terrible thought. It's a terrible, terrible thought because they're very, very decent people. They're, they're not bad people at all, but I could not, I could not get rid of the thought. And, you know, as I told, it was it Hamish McKenzie who interviewed me that you saw somebody I told recently about this. I said, I went home and looked for beyond good and evil. I looked for my Nietzsche. I said, I need to protect myself from these cowardly Christians. They, they are afraid of life. They, they, they are children. I, I, and I could not shake the thought. And it was the last time that I set foot in a cathedral for years, not until my wife Linda died a decade later and I found myself bereft and lost and wandering back into a back pew of that very same congregation where I was received as a prodigal son, but where I had very little to contribute and I simply wanted to hear the prayer spoken and I wanted to hear the music sung. And I wanted to be in their company. I did not know why or to what end, but it was almost a decade before I set foot in the church again after that. Hey. Nietzsche's critique is, as you put it, this bunch of cowards, these bunch of people who are celebrating weakness and failure and the slave mentality of Christianity. It's 
It's by far the most unsettling critique of Christianity I've ever read. And it's interesting that you went to him as a, as a, because if anyone knows the abyss goes all the way down, it's Nietzsche. Yeah. yeah, But is it possible, is it, it's possible, is it not, to believe in eternal life without being so terrified of confronting the reality of death and sickness and tragedy? I mean, I can totally understand that this seems like an almost bizarre response to something so terrible. I mean, even though it's theologically consistent, in some ways, Christians should be celebrating the deaths of their fellows because, strictly speaking, logically speaking, they're right, right? I mean, that 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 this person is now in eternal life. But it's possible to believe in that, but not to ignore the the emptiness and the awfulness of death and it is. suffering. It, I'm going to mention Richard John Newhouse again, and I apologize, Andrew, but only because... No, you can. I mean, I'm not. I, I just had some, well, some rough moments. No, and with, and with perfectly good justification. I don't, you know, you, you told me some things I didn't actually know and I should have known. But I was going to mention his book, As I Lay Dying, which he wrote mm. after recovering from a stomach cancer. It went into remission. He thought it was going to kill him. And he lay dying and miraculously it did not kill him. And he got a reprieve and he had a, something of a recovery and he published this book. And I can remember going to hear him talk about this book at a Catholic bookstore in suburban Boston. I don't know, it was two, 2009, 2010. My wife Linda died in 2011. And unfortunately, Richard's cancer came back and, and it killed him some months later. But in the book, he, makes a case for hope without without succumbing to a kind of fanciful belief. I mean, he, 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 he basically tries to defend the proposition that you just stated, which is that I am going to believe in eternal life, but, I, but you know what? I'm dying here. That's a horrible tragedy. I don't want to die. This is me. There aren't going to be any other me's after I'm gone. You can't prettify that. That, that's that's a bad thing. I dread it. I dread it. I dread it. Okay. I, I tell you, I dread it. Nevertheless, I am a Christian and I, and I do ultimately affirm the promises and there's mystery here. And I'm, and I'm not sure exactly what all the answers are, this kind of thing. He tries to make that, that case. And I, I read that book out loud to my wife, Linda, as we lay together on her bed where she was bedridden with her metastatic breast cancer. And uh, she's a very hard-nosed woman. She, you know, she, she didn't believe in magic. She was tagging along with me when we were going to that evangelical church, mostly because she knew I needed to be there. But she was skeptical about a lot of the supernatural claims all along. And she took great comfort from it. Yeah, I think distinguishing hope from optimism or cheerfulness is is the critical distinction. And I let me just be clear, not that Richard John Newhouse didn't produce some some deep and important stuff. I'm not I'm 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 not attempting to in any way consign all his work and all the good things he did with some of the, the criticisms Duly that I made of him. Duly uh, no, please please don't. But and I do think that's the right thing. But it is fascinating, isn't it, how death death forces you to these things in ways that nothing else will, especially death that is utterly unfair, like your young protege. Certainly for me, to lose 
half my friends in their 20s and 30s was something very challenging to to reconcile with Christianity and and with my faith that God is good. In, In my experience, I remember very clearly a moment when that hit me the way that it hit you in the, well, watching people celebrate it was my 30th birthday when I just I kind of just somewhere just felt that what was being done to my friends. And at the same time, my mother was in a terrible state in a, in, in a mental home and in, in a mental hospital in England. And I looked around at my friends and, and I just saw these people did not deserve this. In fact, they were the last people who deserved it. I was actually going to survive, even though that was, even though I didn't deserve it. In my mind, I I thought I was the worst. And it didn't occur to me that God did not exist because I find that very hard to, I've never been able to disbelieve in the existence of meaning at at a grand level. In other words, that God is underpinning the universe. But I did come to the view temporarily that that force was evil. And which I think is the more serious alternative, which I think is what Nietzsche was pointing towards. And, and I don't think there's an actual good argument against that. I just think there is this decision to hope otherwise and to act on that hope. Somehow I got up and continued. And, and I don't know where that comes from. Honestly, if I were to be, you know, certainly as a Christian or as a gay person, I mean, the, 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 the the obstacles are overwhelming and the hypocrisy in these institutions devastating and just preposterous and horrifying. But I can't shake the idea that God exists and I can't shake the idea that at some point God loves me, which are two very different but powerful statements. And they're both unlikely in my mind if I were to put on my objective empirical hat, but yet they are two things that I can't live without. Does that make sense to you? It, it does. I, they're not only, or maybe unlikely, they're also, and more importantly, unverifiable. Right, they, of they're, course. They're yes. not questions to which evidence is going to ever be able to give an answer. And you're a man of evidence. You are, you are <laughs> a man of absolute pathological adherence to evidence. And that's what I find so interesting about your work. It's so relentlessly empirical. It, it's so relentlessly logical. Explain to me unpack for me the feeling that you are creating your life and you're pursuing your intellectual convictions as best you can. And that in itself is regarded as a betrayal by, by, by your people. That's a very difficult place to be in, is it not? Yeah. And it, it made me curious, actually, in that I thought, so here's a story. I go back to Chicago after I'd given these lectures at Harvard that I mentioned, the Du Bois lectures in 2000, and a small book came out mm-hmm. of Harvard University Press, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality. And it was well regarded by my peers, and I get invited by Stanley Fish, the literary mm. critic. He was dean of the humanities at the University of Illinois, Chicago, in these years, early aughts. And he invites me to give a big university lecture. And I invite my uncle, my mother's brother, the father of 22, a black man of relatively radical temper, to come to hear my lecture. He's never seen me lecture before. He brings eight of his sons. They stand in the back of the, of the lecture hall. 
And after the lecture, there's a reception at Deirdre McCloskey. Deirdre McCloskey is a distinguished economic historian and a trans woman. And she's a very distinguished woman, a historian, economic historian with many books, a very serious scholar. And she was, I think, chair of the economics department at the University of Illinois, Chicago in those years. And in any case, she has a reception. And my uncles, his sons come to the reception. It's packed with all of these academic types and these guys from the South Side. They were the only guys from the South Side in there. And it was hilarious. Actually, it was hilarious. The culture clash that went on. Alfred, my uncle, and Deidre, the trans woman, are flirting with each other. And Alfred doesn't know what everybody else in the room knows. <laughs> and when I tell him, you should have seen the look on his face. He was appalled that he was attracted to this woman. <laughs> They bring some canopies from the kitchen to serve around his hors d'oeuvres, and he takes one with raw tuna on it, spits it back in his hand, and shouts out, Y'all got any pork back there? (laughs) (laughs) This is my Uncle Alfred. He was was a a one-of-a-kind character. One-of-a-kind. I thought he was going to ask if someone to cook it. So at the end, at the end of the day, he takes me aside and he he, he uh, reprimands me. He says, you know, I listened to your lecture and I didn't hear any taking the white man to task in your whole lecture. You were way too deferential to those people who asked you questions and you're way too highfalutin academies. And why don't we get down to it? Don't you know we're in a fight to the death here that that black people have? He didn't say knee on the neck. That's what we'd say today. But black people have the man's knee on our neck. Et cetera. I expected more from you, he says. We can only send one from our Chicago neighborhoods off to the Harvards and the MITs of the world. We've sent you, and we don't see us in anything you do. This is my uncle. Yeah. To which my response in my mind, my actual response was deferential and passive. I'm sorry you disappointed in me, uncle, but my response in my mind was I did not abandon the South Side, I transcended it. Everybody comes from somewhere. I've shaken the hands of the president and I've, I've traveled to a dozen countries around the world and I've mastered bodies of knowledge and I've, you know, and I've made myself into a world-class practitioner, practitioner of my craft. That's something that you should be proud of. You shouldn't expect me to mimic you. You're, you're trying to put me in a box. And in the book, when I tell this story, I invoke James Joyce, who makes Stephen Devilis in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man say something like about Irish nationalism. This might not be an exact quote, but it's pretty close. When the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold them, hold him back. I shall try to fly by these nets. You talk to me about language, about religion, about culture. I'm going to turn those nets into wings and to fly by them. I'm going to make myself into a man of the modern world, I thought, as my uncle was admonishing me. I'm not going to live in your box. That's what I thought. But I didn't have the courage to to tell him that. Well, that's um, interesting, right? Yeah, I, I was deferential. This is this is my mother's Maybe brother. it's not the right occasion to get into a big fight with your uncle. No, uh, and I'm not sure he would but... have even understood what I was trying to say mm. to him. I, I think mm. he would have taken mm. it as impertinence. But but I'm I was I was fighting for my the dignity of my life. And by the way. This fellow who had met presidents and had lectured on continents and all the rest was still a child of the South Side of Chicago, still a black man. It it was in my 
cultural, identitarian DNA. You can't take that away from me. Even as I fashion a life as a Black man in the 21st century, based on the opportunities that have been given, the inspirations that I've received, and so forth and so on, I'm not less Black for being, as it were, a free man. And I, I mean, I think this is why many of us who followed your work are inspired by it, or at least in some ways <laughs> emboldened by it, because you know some of us aren't in, we're put in boxes, and we are continually put in boxes, and they keep trying to recreate the box and put you in it. Now they're trying to recreate gay people and say we're all queers again, or that we all have the same politics, or that we all have the same notion of what sex is or what life is. The left particularly does this, I think, in terms of minority groups. It just defines them in ways that, that, that they don't necessarily define themselves. And so to be able to say, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, but I sure I'm gay. Similarly to say, you know, I, yeah, I believe in, I'm still gay, right? I mean, you, you can't take that away from me. Even though you are outcast to some extent, demonized or most of the time, just simply silent, ignored, like kept out of the sphere of discourse or constantly referred to if you were ever brought up as that conservative right-wing economist, Glenn Lowry, or that right-wing fascist, white supremacist, Edward Sullivan, so on. But I, again, you come back to, well, I, I'm no less gay than anybody else. I'm no less same-sex attracted. There are more people like me. The more people that speak about their lives honestly as being outside of these boxes, the more oxygen there is in the air for everyone in that community to breathe and flourish. This fear that minorities can't have robust internal debates that were respectful or interesting, it's a terrible fear, I think. It's a terribly constrictive fear, and yet it, it seems eternal. Even after like gay people have won in ways that are unimaginable, 30 years ago, civil rights and political equality and civil equality in almost every respect, this attempt to keep putting us back in this box is relentless. And I think maybe it's just because we don't have faith that the individual really does transcend, to yours words, these categories and identities, that in the end, the point is to transcend, not to totally reflect. Transcend doesn't mean you disown either. It means that you are just a human being, a a real individual with these characteristics. I love being gay. I absolutely love it. I always have, despite all sorts of external constraints. And so I think if you just are honest about this and say, this is who I am, you think it's a contradiction. I don't think it is because I'm I'm, I'm a human being and human beings are full of contradictions, but nonetheless, I, I'm real. And I think that's what you've done to some extent in ways that others have as well. They think it's... That I find very encouraging. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I was going to add, they think not only is it a contradiction, they think it's a betrayal. Yeah. They, they... And it really, it's in some ways, it's really a dedication not to betraying, it's to be true. At the same time, I see wonderful things. I don't know whether you're Lil Nas X, <laughs> a random person. He's this fantastic, young, openly gay, black singer, writer, performer who is genius. What's the name brilliant. again? He's just being Lil Nas X. Oh. L-I-L-N-A-S-X. Oh, Lil Nas uh, X. You, okay, I've heard you know, about him. No, yeah. sorry. Is it my accent? I, whatever. He's, no, a, he's, no. he's a glorious 
glorious one-off individual who who plays with all of this stuff, like plays with the gay stuff, plays with the black stuff, plays even with like being a bottom rather than a top stuff, like stuff that would be outright, but he's full of it and he's just him and he's incredibly talented. And every time something like that happens, I have a little celebration at the triumph of individuality within these community contexts. And every time I see someone from those minorities just start talking in tired, exhausted phrases and, and sort of copy pasta about oppression, all that, I just feel depressed. It's like you haven't come to terms with your, you haven't really made your own life living it through this other construct. Anyway, I'm, I'm now <laughs> blathering, but it's a way of saying thank you because I know that there are psychological, emotional, spiritual costs to what you have lived, but I see through it pursuit of the truth. I know it sounds, that's cliche, but I just see that as the guiding principle of what you've been doing most of your life and honesty too. Thank you for sharing about drug abuse, faith, lack of it. All this stuff is so out there and real. And I'm grateful that people have, and I'm sure with this memoir, people are going to have a better understanding personally and psychologically of where the works of Glenn Lowry come from. Well, so this is a message to everybody out there. Look forward to this memoir. I mean, it's really, a, it's going to be quite an event, I think. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. I, I admire the walk that you've been walking for some time now and it must take a, a lot of courage and determination. Like I said, my son, Glenn, Glenn II, is a gay man. And if I say Andrew Sullivan to him, he's going to go, he's going to have a fit. He's, he's angry with you for your trans comments and, you know, I don't even want to go into it, but but I, I'm just saying when I see the vitriol that 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 he, you know he doesn't know you from Adam. All he knows is what he sees on television. I, I realize you must be confronting this on a daily basis, and gosh, that's got to be tough. Well, especially when you're described actually as 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 someone who's acting to a hurt and wound and or hate hate people hate as if like because I'm worried that that we have this slightly over not slightly but completely, I think, unhinged idea of what, of a postmodern idea of what sexual identity is and what trans identity is, in which children can be yeah. told they can pick anything they want and are told that from an early age. And some of them are making irreversible medical yeah. decisions for their entire life. The fact that I object to that does not mean that I hate these kids, for fuck's sake. It means that I am I particularly worried that some kids are going to be caught up in this in a way that will hurt them. And, and the notion that I have anything but respect and, and love and concern for trans people is, is incredibly hurtful, but it's, it's the only thing they have to throw at you. And it just feels very sad that, that that exists. But the ferocity of the hostility and hatred is really quite remarkable. And the relentlessness with which you are excised from any role or any contribution you have played within that community is, is really quite remarkable. But hey, I'm not whining. I'm an individual, right? And, and we do what we, and, and, and I've been able to have a really wonderful life and career doing what I do. And, and you have too. Anyway, enough of this. I just want to thank you, Glenn, for coming on. My pleasure. It's been a really, really fascinating discussion. I recommend The Glenn Show. Please watch it. And we have some amazing guests coming up. I really hope you'll tune in to John Gray, for example, who's probably one of the most brilliant 
thinkers we have Matt Bai, I mean, Matt Bai, or my, my head is like Matt Tybee, I meant, who's going to be coming on too. Many others who are, we have a very good lineup this year. So anyway, if you love this, please subscribe to the Weekly Dish Substack. We give this away for free right now, but we'd really like you to support us. And with that, and after this really rather fascinating discussion, you have a great week and we'll see you, see you next time. Thanks a lot.